Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. States become a truly equal society in which people are judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin? Or are we a hopelessly systemic racist society threatened by white supremacy? I would say none of the above. Racism is still real and needs to be countered. Martin Luther King's ideal has not yet been achieved. But the white nationalism charge seems intentionally overblown and a cover for imposing new policies that will divide us more profoundly over race than we have been since the bad old days of Jim Crow. That's my sense. But equality is such an important goal that I wanted to interview someone who has spent decades focusing on civil rights and how to best promote a truly equal society for everyone. I am honored that Ward Connerly has agreed to join me today. Wardell Anthony Ward Connerly is a nationally renowned American political activist, businessman, and served as a University of California regent between 1993 and 2005. He is also the founder and chairman of the American Civil Rights Institute, a national nonprofit organization in opposition to racial and gender preferences, and is the president of Californians for Equal Rights, a nonprofit organization active in the state of California with a similar mission. In 1995, Connerly led the drive to get Proposition 209 on the ballot, prohibiting race and gender-based preferences in state hiring, contracting, and state university admission. It passed with 54.6% of the vote. In 1997, Connerly supported a similar ballot measure in Washington State, Initiative 200, which would later pass with 58.2% of the vote. For the 2020 election, Connerly organized the coalition opposing Proposition 16, which would have removed the sections added to the California Constitution after Proposition 209 was approved by the voters. In the end, 57% of votes cast in the election opposed Proposition 16. Proposition 209 remains the law of the state of California. Connerly is also the author of Creating Equal, My Fight Against Race Preferences, and Lessons from My Uncle James, Beyond Skin Color to the Content of Our Character. Ward, welcome to Humanize. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You grew up poor, and uh, you come from a multiracial background during the Jim Crow era when racism really had sharp teeth. Tell us about your youth and how you were able to overcome racist obstacles to achieve the American dream. First of all, I was born in Leesville, Louisiana in 1939 in the Jim Crow era. 
My mother died when I was four. My mother and father had divorced when I was two. And I became the project of what I call the committee of three. My grandmother, maternal grandmother, my Aunt Bird and Uncle James, they were the committee of three that accepted responsibility for raising me and uh, and other members of the maternal side of my of my family. I knew nothing about my father, uh, who I didn't see from the age of two until he was on his deathbed. Uh, in, in the late 1990s. And um, although my grandmother, who really had the primary responsibility, never, <clears throat> she never remarried, and she was poor, but poor in income, not poor in values and, and uh, love. I had a lot of love that I received from that committee of three. And I had a lot of tough love that I needed to grow up to be somebody to make sure that I treated other people the way that I should be treated. And, and uh, the values were administered by a switch often that my <laughs> grandmother had by her side and she would swat my legs and make sure that I got the message. So uh, my, uh, my belief is that you have to be responsible for your own life. There is racism of a sort, and it comes in many different forms. But as, in the final analysis, whether there is racism or not, it's your responsibility as a person to overcome that. And that was the rallying cry of those of us who were subject to Jim Crow. We shall overcome. You have to accept responsibility for your own life. There's no way to avoid that. You have to accept that. And once you accept that and you decide you're going to compete in this great thing that we call America... Um, the opportunities are there. So I would respond to your question by saying love, love and uh, accepting responsibility. It's very interesting. Uh, it sounds to me as if um, the committee of three, I like that, they weren't denying the difficulties of that era, uh, but they were saying you're not going to let the difficulties of this era, the racism that exists, hold you back. Is that right? That's right. Um, you know, we didn't know at the time <laughs> that we were being suppressed. We knew it, but we didn't know it. That sounds a little odd, but when you form a community, as black people did, and even though our family was probably more we had is we had more white faces in my immediate family than we did darker skinned people, but we didn't know that we were being oppressed because we had a community around us. When you're living in a cocoon, you don't know you're in a cocoon until somebody tells you that you are, and 
we had formed a family and a family of biological family, but there is also the church. Uh, black people built communities that were very strong, insular in many ways. You were segregated. You didn't go outside that the boundaries of that community, but you gave each other warmth and comfort and we survived, not only survived, but many people flourished within that community. And so it wasn't as, as desperate as, as uh, people think. Uh, and the reality is that it allowed people to, to, uh, to compete within and to become great in a way Many people left that community and moved from the south to the west and to the north and and uh, in search of freedom. But but uh, I like to to make make a nuanced response because that's the way it was. It was not a matter of oh poor us. It was a matter of these are bad circumstances emotionally because we're being oppressed now that you remind us of it but we shall overcome we shall overcome and and, and i believe that overcome did occur uh, for the most part and jim crow is dead and certainly unlamented what do you credit that tremendous american achievement how, how did that come about that that the entire society said we have to throw this poison off it comes about because of our founding. We shall we, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yes, all of the people that founded this country were white. There's no escaping that. There's nothing wrong with that. But their whiteness did not uh, inhibit them from having a moral approach to the founding of the country. We are founded in a moral conviction that every human being is entitled to equal treatment under the law. There was a problem in that slavery, which was an economic system, did not recognize black people as persons. They yes. were, we were not really citizens. We were persons, but we were not citizens. And citizens, if you were black, uh, was a fractional matter. Black people were three-fifths of a citizen, and that was an economic matter. Property. With your property, you had to be divided in effect and measured by a fraction. So once Dr. King and others made the case that this is a this is something that is denying people their right and put the argument on a moral plane. The country said, yeah, you're right. And the country followed suit. I don't mean that in any way to justify slavery, which was abhorrent. But I'm saying that you cannot look at life and from today's perspective and render judgment on people who lived a hundred and 
some years ago and certainly 200 some years ago and say that they're all wrong without looking at the context. And the context was that black people were left with something that we had to dig ourselves out of, not of our own making, but we did. And it was one of the glorious examples of civilization, uh, a lesson for the world. Yeah, it's a triumph. Uh, it's an that, absolute triumph. I agree with you completely. But you can't judge it. You can't judge it by uh, by today's standards. You know, uh, you you mentioned the founders, and these days we hear, well, the founders were slaveholders, which you know Washington was, Madison was, Jefferson was. On the other hand. Um, Jefferson's words that you quoted, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, set in motion forces that were, uh, I think, and of course Lincoln was uh, highly um, partisan with regard to the Declaration of Independence, uh, I think that, that they set in motion moral forces that ultimately would, have, of course, have to lead to the end of slavery. There was no other outcome once you accept that as the philosophy of the United States. That's right. That's right. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to say that black people took up the challenge and were joined by a lot of other people uh, to overcome that institution and I can't imagine it ever occurring again in this country. Um, we still have problems to deal with. We still have communities of people who are not given their full opportunities. People of Asian descent, for example, uh, are suppressed in many ways because of psychological reasons what I call the Hop Singh syndrome. Uh, we believe that Asians, people of Asian descent, um, have a role to play, and it's sitting in the back room and with their green shades on, uh, developing software, not running for president or something of that nature. And, and we're working our way through that as a society. And. But, but we still have problems. So when you, uh, where did you go to college? I went to Sacramento State College, now Cal State at Sacramento. And, and when did you move to California? I moved to California in 1946. Okay, when you were Many still. Three yeah. Mater came from, we went from Leesville, Louisiana to Bremerton, Washington. And then from Bremerton, Washington to uh, Sacramento, California. When when you moved to California, you you weren't quite an adult yet, and so then you went to college here. Uh, did you go into business uh, once you uh, graduated, or what, where did your life take you at that point? Well, I uh, went to Sac State by way of American River Community College. I could not afford. Uh, anything more than that, I had to go to a college close to home. An American River, then junior college, was the closest thing to it. Uh, I was a good, good student. I had uh, probably an A minus overall average. Um, I didn't have transportation, 
So I joined with three other black kids, uh, one of whom had a car, and we went to AR. I went there for two years. Uh, I met a an English professor, uh, Dr. Edith Friley, who uh, took an interest in my life. She was a very, very close mentor who uh, taught me some basics about writing and and about life. She introduced me to my knower, K-N-O-W-E-R, which was uh, a refined, enlightened instinct, if you will. And she said to me, Mr. Connerly, always follow your knower. And uh, my knower told me to stay on track with college. After American River, I went to transfer it over to Sac State, uh, joined a fraternity, and uh, became president of the student body in 1961. And um, a number of other things that put me on a path to uh, become a businessman, if you will. I met Pete Wilson, a, uh, an aspiring, uh, more than an aspiring legislator, but a man who uh, became a governor of California and a United States senator. Pete took an interest in my career and hired me as a consultant, chief consultant of a committee that he uh, chaired in the legislature in 1963 or no, I don't forget, remember the years, but Pete hired me and I developed uh, an extensive background in the field of housing, was inducted into the California Building Industry Hall of Fame and uh, formed my own company when I left the legislature in uh, 19... uh, 68 I left and then in 1972 I uh, branched out into my own private enterprise uh, with Connerly and Associates. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. It's, It's also interesting that you're a leader at heart because you became the head of the student body in 1961, which was still a time where racism was very real, and yet you were able to uh, be elected throughout the school, correct? You know, I, I uh, looked back upon that and, 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 and touched upon the same reality that you did, Wesley. Uh, how could that be that in a student body population where there were only about 50 black kids, uh, I was able to rise to the top there and was elected. And it wasn't because of diversity. Uh, I was I was a pretty pretty good kid, bright, I believe, and I don't say that <clears throat> with any uh, self adoration, uh, just a recognition of the fact. But I. I didn't see myself as a black kid. I saw myself as a person who could compete. The fraternity that I joined had no black kids in it. That didn't matter to me. And 
everywhere I've gone, I've either been, at least during that time, I was either the only black. Um, well, in fact, I was the only black. But that didn't matter to me either because I did not see, I could see color, but it didn't matter to me at all that I was different or that they were different. Everybody else was different. College is different. And uh, so I think you are what you bring to the table. If you if you go there thinking you're going to be the only black or whatever, you will never rise above that. If you go there thinking that you are white and therefore you are are different, that shouldn't matter to you either. And that's the attitude I had. And I think that is the attitude that we all have to have. Uh, I remember when I went to the Board of Regents, and uh, there I was, again, uh, the only for a while. And one of the regents um, had a very condescending attitude, and he was going to look out for me as the, the black regent. Well, I did not like that. And that was one of the things that set me on the path to demonstrate to the board that we can't use these characteristics to define people in this country. In this country, we are individuals. We are individuals. And gonna- so my attitude was one of individuality, individual rights. That defines who I am. I was going to get to this a little later, but I think this is a good time. Uh, we see the opposite approach often today when it comes to racial relationships where people of color are told that is your identity and that is what you have to focus on and you cannot have an equal shot because of that. Uh, am I uh, correct in seeing that uh, that as an issue that has arisen in, the say, the last 10 or 15 years? Wesley, you, you are so right. Um the problem we have right now, it seems to me, is not Democrat versus Republican, although that is a major problem. It's progressive versus the traditionalists. The progressives, which were uh, on the margins of our society 20 years ago, let's say, progressive ideology was on the margin. Now it is at the center of the Democrat Party. They've taken over the Democrat Party, and at the heart of progressive ideology is the issue of race. Progressives really want to, in the words of Senator Bernie Sanders, transform America, and they're doing it, uh, mainly because we haven't recognized the challenge that is there, and to transform America they believe you have to deal with white supremacy. Not white supremacy as you and I would define it, but the mere fact that that uh, in America, the president is white, uh, most of the institutions are headed by whites. Well, that's a function of the population. If you are a nation that started out with 80% or so of the population being white, 
uh, it doesn't matter about their ideology. It's the the mere fact that they're white. Well, if your attitude is so what, as mine was, it is of no consequence. But if your attitude is that we have to be represented, and I put that in air quotes, then that's very significant. And most of us who don't buy into that ideology have been slow to react. We've been slow to take up the challenge and to make the case for individual rights and that they've gained they've gained ground over the last 20 years with this goofy ideology and that's morally wrong and that can bring down the country if we don't combat it. It's the difference between equality and equity, isn't it? And that is it. And when uh, Vice President Harris made the comment over the weekend about equity being used uh, with respect to Hurricane Ian, um, for me it was, aha, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And uh, the country has to respond to that. FEMA went quickly on the air on Face the Nations to Face the Nation to uh, say that everybody is going to be assisted, but the damage was done politically. We now have to understand that this is what she was doing. This is what the Biden administration is really all about. And we're focused on inflation as we should be. We're focused on a border that leaks like a sieve as we should be. But don't overlook equity because that can fundamentally change the country. We can bring inflation down over time. We can correct the problem at the border. But once we allow equity to take hold, Katie bar the door because America is no longer what America was intended to be. In your life, um, you said that you believed in equality, the, the committee of three you know, push that you can do whatever it is you want to achieve. Uh, equity would say, well, we need to have equality um, of outcomes as opposed to equality of opportunity. And actually, um, that kind of an approach would have sapped the strength that you had that allowed you to emerge as a leader in business and then in education, wouldn't it? Yes, it would have. Uh, and People need to understand, Wesley, that it's not a matter of, uh, as Vice President Harris is trying to portray it, it's not a matter of equality plus equity, that you can have equality plus equity. No, I don't think so. I think it's, a, it's an either-or situation. You either believe in equality that every individual is entitled to equal treatment and equal protection of the law, or you don't. Um, and equity is a standalone proposition because if you believe that the equity ideology is a valid one, then you buy into proportional proportionalism. And you need so many of these and so many of those in various sectors of life. 
and you apply that to certain venues and you apply to, apply it to those only. For example, we don't demand equity on the basketball court or on the football field. We rely on merit. We rely on competition to decide the winners and the losers. But we think that that government is so important that we have to have equity there. And it becomes either or. You can't say we'll have 12% black people in the Congress and that's going to be okay. But someday we could reach that point. And the point that I make to other people is that uh, it doesn't matter who you are, but at some point, if you buy into this equity stuff, that dog's going to come back and bite you because it could be Asians who are being suppressed right now. It can be white people next year. And in many cases, it already is. But white people have been silent uh, as this has all begun to grow up in our country and to overwhelm us. White supremacy is silence. Uh, white voices on this issue. Yeah, people are intimidated to speak against it because they're afraid of being called racist, which is one of the worst things you can call anyone, and frankly, one of the worst things you can, worst attitudes you can have. But but well, that, there's a you, there's Uncle a canard Tom, there, isn't there? Uncle Tom is not too yeah. tasteful either. Yes, that's true. Uh, which you've been called, right? Uh, yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> uh, but the committee of three gave me quite a bit of strength. And I don't allow those silly uh, charges against me to, to uh, overwhelm me. But uh, you're right. Uh, the, the, the claim of, of, race, of white supremacy and racism really frightens whites to the point of total paralysis. And I, I, I hate that. I just hate it. It's a fact of life, but uh, it's something that I really wish we could get beyond because it, it means that the dominant racial identity in America is not on the battlefield fighting for something that they've fought for throughout the ages we wouldn't be where we are without whites who uh, took a moral stance and decided to go along with what Dr. King was arguing for. Equality has been a partnership. It's been a partnership in America and everybody, uh, especially whites, especially black people, have led the way. You supported laws to outlaw racial discrimination in housing, but you also became nationally famous for opposing what is called affirmative action. Is there a contradiction in those two positions? No, there isn't. Equality in housing says that this person in the economic system um, is seeking a house, uh, seeking an apartment. People cannot enjoy happiness if they have a great a place to stay we don't want them sleeping on a sidewalk under a blue tent uh, so they're entitled to participate fully 
in our economic system. Equality of opportunity means the fullness of what America has to offer. And affirmative action, which was a detour from our uh, belief in our laws about e equal treatment under the law, as evidenced in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, we need to acknowledge that that was not equal, equal treatment under the law. Uh, affirmative action is, a, is an abridgment of the rights of other people. When uh, President Biden said that we needed uh, Contadri Jackson Brown on the Supreme Court, we needed a white, a black person on the court. Uh, the mere fact that he had made that decision without opening it up to everybody was a form of affirmative action. It was a form of discrimination. The country did not respond in a negative way. I did because I saw it as it was. It was not opening a, the nomination up to a white judge or a an Asian judge or a Native American judge. He made the decision based on that. That was wrong. Um, affirmative action is a detour from our fundamental beliefs. We need to recognize that it was done at a time when we needed to overcome racism. There were people who believed that if you were black, you were inferior. And affirmative action was intended to shock the system with a policy that turned everything around. But the problem is, once you do those kind of things, it becomes difficult to get back on track. We now need to get back on track to what the system was all about, and that is individual rights. I don't say civil rights because the likes of Dr. of uh, Reverend Jackson and Al Sharpton made civil rights a black monopoly. It's about elevating the condition of black people, not about individual rights. So I try to um, outline the distinction between equal rights and civil rights. Uh, but that's where we are. That's interesting. Here's something you wrote about affirmative action back on May 2nd in the Epic Times. Quote, this policy of good intentions about equal opportunity has become the equivalent of the disease that it was prescribed to cure as it measures matters according to outcomes. Close quote. Are you saying that racial preferences harm the very people they are intended to help? Yes, of course. Um... That regent who took me on as a project, who wanted to take me on as a project uh, back in 1993, uh, I wasn't his equal in his mind. I was not his equal. I was this unusual character who needed to be taught a lesson, how to, be, how to fall in line and be a good black. Um, when Barack Obama, whose philosophy I'm against, but when Barack Obama was running for president, some of his strongest admirers were quoted as saying there were times when he was a 
guy who would, I forget the exact analogy, but he was, he was so bright. He was so articulate. He was unusual. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, in fact, president, vice Pre- president now Biden basically said that about him, <laughs> that he was highly yeah, yeah, articulate. Right, like right. it was an unusual thing, right? Like it was very, it was odd to have a person of dark skin who was able to speak the English language uh, the way it was intended, and and we need to we need to get beyond that. We need to get we need to understand individual rights. We need to start where I started from, which was the belief that we're created by a supreme being. And and we're all different. Every one of us is different, but we're all the same in effect. Because if you expect, if you respect the value of human life, you understand that it comes in different physical appearances, but it's still human life. And 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 we need to understand that, and we need to make that case. We have not made the case over the years. Those of us right of center have done a very poor job of fighting this disease of progressivism. Uh, Progressives, uh, and I don't want to be overly critical of them, but progressives are not anchored in a set of beliefs by definition. They change. And today... It's one thing, tomorrow it's something else. They call it progressive, but the further away they get from America's founding, the less progressive it is. It is more regressive. And we need to understand that as a nation, or we're in big, big trouble. You said that the murder of George Floyd was not a racial incident. What do you think, what do you think it was if it wasn't racial? I think it was bad, bad law enforcement. Uh, the police, the the law enforcement industry, is based on a lot of things. It's based on fear. You're out there on the street with your life. You have no protection. Awfully often, uh, you can call into your phone and uh, get help, but in the three or four minutes while it comes. Your life is on the line, and cops often operate on the basis of fear. Fear can lead to hate, hate of the criminal, not racial hate, but hate of the criminal. That person on the street that you have chased down and caught, that SOB is causing you grief. You've got to do something about him. If you don't, He's going to harm you. Uh, That fear drives you. That fear causes you to do things that you otherwise otherwise might not do. You don't hate black people, but you know that a large number of the people that you encounter happen to be black. And so you respond to them as criminals, and it is interpreted as anti-black. It's not anti-black. It's anti-criminal. It's your job to stop the criminal. And so you develop this fear in your heart and your mind about the criminal, which translates into George Floyd as a guy that 
you know is a threat to you, you know that he is doing harm, and you respond to him on that basis. But there is a problem that I think is very real. Uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, you know a lot of perhaps a disproportionate number of uh, people that the police interact with may be uh, African-American. But that can also lead to uh, the misstatement and the misthinking and, and the wrong thinking that when I see an African-American, I think they're a criminal. How do we avoid that? Yes. Yes, you're right. And I don't, I don't quarrel with anything you're saying. I'm saying it's nuanced. And yes, everything that you say can happen. And we, we, we avoid it by more discussions like this. Yeah, I, 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 I often respond to uh, this whole issue of diversity. Um, I'm accused of not believing in diversity. Yes, I do. I believe and I respect the outcome of diversity. Often, I don't think it really matters, but I don't like building it. I don't like government getting involved and building it. Either you believe in individual rights and non-discrimination, or you don't. If you believe in developing diversity, then you don't believe in non-discrimination. Uh, we don't explain the nuances. We, we don't explain that in developing diversity, we are discriminating against people. Cops reach the point where they can be discriminating with good intention. Every black person you see is not a criminal. Let's talk about it, Officer Jones, and let's give you that understanding as part of your training in law enforcement. Let's let you understand the difference here and make sure that when you're engaged in policing, you understand this. There is, there is a person you're encountering who happens to be black. He's not black. He happens to be, quote, black. That is the nuance of all of this that we don't do. Colleges, instead of explaining this phenomenon of diversity, accept it as a given, but they don't teach you how to deal with diversity, how to manage it. And, and we do a very poor job of that. I want your opinions on a few things. Um, real quick, some quick hits, because we're beginning to run out of time. Black Lives Matter. Um, obviously, they have a right to exist. But I believe that their point was made when they developed the name Black Lives Matter closed down at that point uh, because <laughs> because uh, that was that should have been the point but that really wasn't the point to them and therefore they exist with door sign I see Black Lives Matter on the property uh, signs of million dollar homes uh, in Sacramento of people who want to identify with Black Lives Matter, and they don't have a clue what Black Lives Matter is all about. It's a desire, I think, um, uh, to 
embrace what you've discussed, which is equality. Um, but you're saying that Black Lives Matter as an organization is actually pushing equity. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And what about they, critical? Uh, what about critical race theory? It's a uh, an academic concept that is so avant-garde that most people don't even understand it. But it's it's uh, it's at its core, it's the height of racism. It is designed to alter society. Uh, and from critical race theory, you get this equity stuff. You get diversity and you get an, a, an accentuation of racial identity rather than a lessening of it. But it, it, it is a bad philosophy. And, and then there's the antithesis. A, the, the antithesis, I'm sorry, it, of. It's the antithesis of what our country wants in our people. We don't want people to identify, well, I, I shouldn't say we don't want. I believe that it's it's contrary to our founding to accentuate, quote, race. We were a melting pot. It sounds hokey right now to even say it, but we were conceived as a nation, one nation indivisible, uh, we, we, we weren't designed to be a nation of separate races, uh, but that's what has happened. It's evolved, and therefore it's very, very difficult to, to go back and un, unring the bell. But critical race theory has helped to bring us down this path. Critical race theory is an academic creation, and... As such, the rest of society thought, oh, that sounds good, and away we go. And now we're celebrating our diversity, which is a way of celebrating our destruction, in my view. In, in critical race theory, it seems to me, um, would say that what you achieved isn't possible anymore, or was never possible, and, and that's clearly not true. And not true at all, And uh, but we have not... We have not uh, made that point. If we had probably 20 million people who listen to our exchange here, I think we could change some hearts and minds about it. But this has now been reduced to the realm of, of, uh, of not being discussed, which is odd in America, but we don't discuss this issue. We, we're expected to to uh, celebrate our diversity and close discussion at that point. When I say no, that's where the discussion ought to begin. Yes, and here here's something um, I want to talk just briefly here about the anti-racist movement, which of course sounds good, and the leading intellectual light of that movement is Ibram X. Kendi. And here's something he wrote, quote, The post-racial idea is the hardest racist idea to put down. Everyone is inclined to consume it. White people and people of color alike long for racism to end. 
When we yearn for something to end and don't know what the end looks like, it is easy to make ourselves believe the end is near. Believing the myth of a post-racial America is a cheap way to feel good, close quote. I think that's pretty um, incendiary uh, in terms of the idea that we can't ever overcome racism when you and I are, have lived long enough to know that we've come a long way toward that very end. What do you think of what Kendi said there? In a word, if I were not as restrained as I like to be, I would respond with bull, and you can fill in the last four letters. Uh, that is nonsense. Uh, you know, every Christmas, I receive a delivery of tacos and tamales made by my former assistant of 24 years, who happens to be of Mexican descent. Every month or so, I uh, am delighted to have lunch with my friends of Asian descent. And I don't want to sound like the, the uh, my best friends are, but that's a fact. And that is the fullness of my life and the fullness of what it means to be an individual in America. You, you, you don't just talk the talk about diversity, but it fills your life. And you don't have people who are just this or that. They are all part of your life. They're all part of your family, your immediate family, as well as your larger family. And this guy that you quoted is an academician who is who is fomenting a form of America that will destroy the country. The well, once you start defining people on that basis, and you start filling the institutions with that kind of nonsense, then you you plant the seeds for the destruction of those institutions. So what what I'm what I'm hearing is, um, Kendi says that post-racial America is a myth, and you are saying it's not only attainable, but it is something that can be attained if we stick to the uh, focus of what you're calling individual rights. Correct? We're there. We're there. We've achieved it. We've achieved it. This guy belongs on the margins of society. He's entitled to have an opinion because we believe in freedom of expression, but we need to respond appropriately. Your idea is goofy. It has no place in America. Promote your idea, but for the rest of us, don't buy into what this guy is saying. And we need to, to broadcast that point of view and uh, and be done with it. Don't give him the, the the attention that he thinks he merits. It, we're not. We should have no fear of achieving that which has already been achieved. 
We are a post-racial society. We live together. We work together. We play together. We marry. We have kids. They don't know which damn box to check. <laughs> um, I, we're almost out of time, but there, are, there are, I made a list here of some prominent African-Americans of the last 50 years, some of whom you know or knew. And I like your quick thoughts on, on uh, their impact, their contribution, or uh, perhaps criticism, if that's where you're thinking. First off, Martin Luther King. Great man, much more nuanced than we think. There are many things he said that we would not agree with, um, but he made an invaluable contribution to this country. He was a man for his time, man for the ages. I think when he said, "I want to be judged by the uh, con- we should be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin," that was as impactful. Uh, a statement as we hold these truths to be self-evident. It was such a powerful truth that it became irresistible. You're right. You're right. Uh, Although he uh, said some other things in his life that if you really study him, you would say, well, that contradicts uh, judging people on the basis of color uh, rather than the content of their character. Uh, but he's a new, we're all nuanced. Exactly, and we all have feelings. (laughs) Yeah, and Dr. King would have been delighted in in, uh, some things that are happening that are of a progressive mindset, so. And he's certainly one of the great, he's certainly one of the great people of American history. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Without Uh, a doubt, without a doubt. Malcolm X. Malcolm X was uh, was uh, not someone that had the popular support, the public support, along the lines of King, but he was a brilliant man who was saying to black people, don't be seduced by these white liberals who are, who are talking about uh, integration be empowered self-empowerment was important to Malcolm X and I didn't understand him at the time and did not buy into his mindset it was a fight that King won and King should have won it it was the right fight right position but Malcolm X uh, had a message that black people needed to understand because black people for a long time were enslaved to to uh, a mindset that that was not the desirable one. They did not take responsibility. We did not go on a path of thinking for ourselves. Uh, why else would 93% of black people be Democrats? Uh, uh, even when Democrats were doing things that were contrary to the best interest of black people. Well, we did so because we did not think for ourselves. Uh, so Malcolm X was right in many respects. And he rejected his own racism toward the end of his life. 
And unfortunately, yes. you know, uh, his assassination cut short something that might have been truly valuable in, in as he was approaching a more equal um, idea of races after he had rejected uh, the Nation of Islam's approach. Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is a, uh, is a great guy. I have a picture that adorns my collection of Tom and Shelby Steele. When I was involved as a regent in, in um, California, and I taken on the institution of affirmative action, and I was getting clobbered by people, uh, especially black people, I called up Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele and offered, invited them to dinner, and the three of us dined, uh, and I sought their counsel on how do I, how do I deal with this? And, uh, and they gave me some casual advice, and uh, he's, a, uh, he's a guy that all Americans should revere because he has been so valuable to many of us in the intellectual world. I'm not an intellectual guy. I'm a businessman who had to enter that world and uh, I was not prepared for it and I needed some uh, colleagues, if you will, uh, who happened to be black and Tom and Shelby were there. Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas is uh, is a great man. Uh, he has not been respected for his contributions. Uh, black people have treated him very unkindly as a group. I don't mean all black people. I have to be careful about that. But black people have, have uh, treated him very unkindly. Uh, one way to criticize a black conservative is to say, oh, he sounds like Clarence Thomas. And you have them, you see them high five and, and chuckle among themselves with their goofy response. Uh, he's become a, an image of black conservatism, but there is no one who is higher on my uh, threshold of, of uh, character and warning respect than Justice Thomas. Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is uh, the greatest of all time. As he would say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was a bright man. He was a bright man who, uh, who ventured outside the realm of, of uh, boxing uh, he was a social critic. He was a politician of sorts, but he was an individual and a very accomplished athlete. Uh, I never personally met him, but I respect him and value his contribution. He taught us how you can be a successful person, a successful person 
with your own set of beliefs. His beliefs were often outside the box, but he taught us a valuable lesson about individuality. And the courage of your convictions. I mean, he sacrificed for his yeah. uh, his beliefs to the point where he lost the championship for a period of time because he refused to be drafted, as you'll recall. So true. And that's a, that courage of convictions, which I think you also exhibit, I think is a, a very important point in being human. President Barack Obama. Um, a... Uh a bright man, a talented guy, uh, missed opportunity in many respects, uh, good family man, great family man. Uh, and do you think it's important he, that he broke the racial barrier when it came to the presidency? Absolutely. Absolutely, I. I don't. I don't buy into his philosophy. He's a progressive, and in many ways, he's a guy without. He's a a political mass, mass. He's waiting to be formed. He's a. He's a, a ball of putty. Um, the making of the president was interesting he uh he said the right things we're not a red america or a blue america and uh he just said all the right things uh i did not agree with him when he announced yet i sent a check of five hundred dollars to his campaign because i thought it would be helpful to the country to elect this man as president. I don't regret having sent it. It was submitted and honored. Um, but I, I just wish that he had, had uh, been more forceful about the action that the country had taken and to help black people understand the importance of getting beyond race. He did not do that. And well, yet he allowed his campaign to promote we are in a post-racial society, but his performance was to the contrary. During the campaign, he had nothing to do with Jackson and Sharpton. I don't, I don't fault that, but after he was elected in the latter years, Sharpton was a frequent visitor to the White House. He can pick his own friends, obviously, and pick his own allies, but it suggested to me that there was an element of non-authenticity about the man. One last name, Ward Connerly. A nice guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a nice guy, thoughtful, really believes what he says, 
uh, on the right path, but he's outside his element in many respects. He's not a politician. Doesn't run for any national office. Uh, doesn't have access to the media except those who want to bring him down mostly. Therefore, he is getting across his message as a maverick here, as a guy that is outside his element in many respects. But he must be doing all right because he has examples of success in promoting his views that have been surprising to a lot of people, even to himself. And the last question, what next for Ward Connerly? I ain't retiring, <laughs> even at 83. And I think that I'm close to declaring ultimate victory, not just for me, but for the American people. If the Supreme Court ends affirmative action, as I fully expect it will do, and uh, yeah, there's a case the in the Supreme Court the right, right now. I think it has to do with Harvard and and discrimination against Asians. Is that correct? That is correct. And, and so, uh, so your legacy, if the Supreme Court overturns affirmative action, you will uh, take a uh, not a victory lap, but a celebratory lap, because that would be the attainment of your life goal. Correct. That's right. Equal rights. It will give true meaning. To we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It will bring us to that point. And we have ventured from it. And if the court does that, and if the right briefs are written by Justice Thomas to say the right things in that decision, I think the country can be turned back around and it's not my victory, it's the country's victory, and we desperately need it. Ward, thank you very much for being with me. I, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.